Well, hello again, and we have back someone super, super special who has already been on the show before. Her name is Chanel Bodero. If you have not, if you didn't see the first one, you have to go back and watch the first one because we have her back. So welcome again, Chanel. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. So on the last interview, we talked about living with the crazy dysfunction of all kinds of mental disorders in your household and all of that. I don't want to say good stuff, but interesting stuff. And you told me about kind of where you're at now and everything. And at the end of the conversation, we got into the conversation. And I don't remember if it was actually when we were still taping or when we were done and we were just talking. And you made a comment to me when I said, well, what was the biggest aha moment you ever had? And you said to me, and you were so nonchalant. You said, <laughs> when I had to interview my mother's 14 different personalities to get her committed to a mental institution. And you uh, said it like you uh, were saying, the day I bought a pack of bubble gum. <laughs> and I couldn't let it go because I was like, you didn't think to mention that when we were having a conversation about dysfunction. So anyway, so I'm actually back here to ask you about that because I, I, I had to, yeah. I had to know more. So no, I, I probably didn't mention it because I think we were so focused on childhood and mm -hmm. this happened when I was 27, 26, 27. Um, and so I just hadn't even gotten to that like timeline yet <laughs> of that whole instance, but kind of going off on that is I was always told, or I guess, I guess I wasn't always told how many alters she had. I don't think my mom really knew. Um, maybe she did. Maybe that's something I blocked out and I just don't remember. Um, but I knew she had a few, right? I knew there were multiple. And she, my whole growing up would go to this psychiatrist. And I remember it because we would go to the building and I would sit in the waiting room by myself in one of these like big old tiny looking chairs. And she would have her meeting with her psychologist or psychiatrist, I guess. Um, and he would, he was the one that prescribed her all of her medic medication. And there was always a joke ro rolling around as a kid that my mother had a suitcase full of pills because she had to take so many to just really function. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and she did. And I remember too, I don't know why I vividly remember this, but I remember, I always thought it was so crazy that she could put a whole pile of pills in her hand and just swallow all of them at once. <laughs> and I think about that like weekly, because anytime I take a pill, I'm like, one, what did like, I can't do all of them. I'm like a child. But that's just one of those random memories you have as a kid that just always pops up because it's just something you were so used to and you saw. And um, fast forward to, I guess I was 26. Um, my son was, had just turned two and I was really struggling in my marriage financially. Um, a lot of things had really gone downhill. Um, my ex-husband failed nursing school. We didn't really know what to do. We were struggling. And um, after some pretty intense fighting with my mother a few months prior and some con artist things, like she convinced me to, to let go of my business and she would help pay for my mortgage. And as you can just assume, that never happened. So I quit a business and then didn't wasn't able to pay my mortgage. And so I kind of cut contact for a little bit. And we we're struggling so bad. And have you heard the term dangling a carrot? Like the mm -hmm. carrot, the carrot, yeah, the dangling yeah. carrot. I didn't know about this term until I went to therapy, but she was real good at it. Um, and she called me one day and I was like, I haven't spoken to her in maybe like four or five months. Like, okay. So I answered it and we talk and she apologizes and she, like all these things where I was like, okay, maybe we've like turned a new leaf. Right. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, I ended up telling her about, you know, our financial struggles and how we were probably going to have to sell our house because we couldn't put it on deferment any longer, all of these things. And she goes, what if you guys just moved over here to Oregon with us? And I was like, at first my gut was kind of like, Ooh, I don't know about that. But 
have a ton of options. We had, we had others, but there wasn't a big plethora of like, oh yeah, that's better. This is better. And they lived in a house. They were renting this. It's not a mansion, but it was like over 6,000 square feet. It was huge. It was big. Mm -hmm. Right. And they lived on like an acre of land that basically had a farm. At the time I had like 16 animals. Okay. I had dogs, cats, chickens, ducks, fish, birds. Like I had my own little mini farm basically at my house. And my biggest concern was what do I do with my animals? And she used that. Mm -hmm. She said, just bring them over. We have a farm. Like they would be so happy. The chickens and ducks have a coop. You could have the dogs have a dog run. Like she just made it seem so amazing. The house was kind of split into two. So me and my husband, well, ex-husband, but husband at the time and our son could basically have our own side of the house. All of these really great things. So I talked with my husband at the time and we were like, okay, like, how do we think maybe we'll do it temporarily, maybe a couple years, get our feet back on the ground. Um, and decided to go ahead and do it. And mind you, during this process of figuring out if we wanted to go, I asked my dad three times, I said, do you think this is a good idea? I need you to tell me that this is either a good idea or a bad idea. You live with her. You live with her. I don't anymore. I haven't lived with her for like eight years. I need you to tell me. And he was like, it's a great idea. I think it's going to be great. She's doing it. She's in a really good spot. I think this is going to be really good for everybody. Three times I asked him this over like a month period. So we pack up, fast forward, we get there, we travel, we get there. I have zero money to my name because we used all of our extra money to move, to, you know, get everything over there. And within three days, she has a complete and total breakdown, like full on mental breakdown. She's no longer there. It is bad. Right. Um, and that started the process of, we have to get her into a psychiatric hospital. Um, and if you've never done that, it's very hard. <laughs> they don't make like, it look hard in the movies. <laughs> no. Yeah. It is very difficult. Um, we started the process of just basically going to hospitals in the area to see if she could be admitted. Um, we were denied twice. We had one hot, one doctor laugh at us, laugh at me in my face. And I pushed my parents out of the room and I had a few words with him. And I said, this is ridiculous. This is not how you treat people. I have proof. I have literally a journal that she has written in that has multiple different handwritings, multiple different like ways of writing and just vocabulary and all of this. I even have in there that she literally says she's going to kill herself. And he just laughs. So we go to a different hospital, we go to a different hospital. And we finally get to a doctor who is like a family friend of like someone on her side of the family. And he flat out said, there's nothing I can do for you. Like, I just, there's nothing we can do. So my parents get in the car and I go back in and I said, I can't remember his name. And I was like, I need you to tell me what you would do if this was your mother. If this was your mother, what would you do? Not what you're going to tell your, your patients. What would you do with your mother? And he said, you're going to have to get her an interventionist. You're going to have to get her into an actual psych hospital. And these are kind of the, the ways of doing that. So I took that information. I met with my aunt who is much closer to my age than my mom's age. She was adopted. She's much younger. Anyways, we're super close. And sure enough, we spent the next like one and a half weeks prepping for an interventionist, but I knew I needed proof. Mm -hmm. So I decided for five days straight, to interview my mother about four hours a day. Um, my mother is, like you said, your mom was very intelligent, very intelligent. So I had to somehow, I don't even remember how I did it, but I had to somehow convince her that what I was doing was purely to help her, just purely to help her. 
But the thing was, is that I wasn't actually talking to her. So I had to convince her alters that I was going, that I was trying to help them, which I was, I wasn't lying. I was trying to help. Right. But there's a very weird way of going about that because alters, they are also trying to protect her, but in a very different mental way. Right. Right. So I was able to convince these alters to talk to me and I would, I would go in with a notebook. I wish I had recorded it, but I didn't, but I would go in with a notebook and I would say, okay, I need like, it's our interview time. I'm Chanel, you know, who are you? And after a while, it is very, very strange to have your mother who raised you sitting on a bed in front of you, looking at you and saying, oh, you're Chanel, right? I think Kim really likes you. Just straight to your face. And you're, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, I think she does like me. Like that's, that's my mom. And you're talking to someone you recognize, but you're actually talking to someone completely differently in the same body. And I was able to record and write down things just based off of vocabulary, the way that she spoke, um, the way that she moved her body, um, the way that she perceived certain things about just life. Like I had, um, one altar was very proper. One altar was almost kind of like loose, like loopy. Like, I don't even know the right word. Like she didn't sit up straight. She kind of was like slouchy. She wasn't, you know, anything where you would be like, oh yeah, she's so proper. She was just kind of like all over the place. Um, there was a couple males that I spoke to and there was, um, a therapist and there was, um, I think the therapist was kind of the main one, but I got a lot of really good information and they, they were open enough to talk to me. Um, and the sad part is that all of their names were basically named by my very much younger sister. So I kind of just utilized those names because that's just kind of what they had done. Totally not healthy, but we went with it. Um, and so there was one alter named Slick Dude. And that's what my that's what my sister named him. And he was fun. He was charismatic. He was, you know, uh, kind of the life of the party. He was kind of the, me- the memory of having that really fun mom. So it was a very weird processing thing for me to actually finally meet these alters kind of one-on-one like that. Obviously they had been there, but they had never truly like come forward and been like, Hey, I'm slick dude, or I'm, you know, this, or I'm this. It was always kind of hidden behind my mom because I think that's how they felt it would be safer to come forward would be to hide behind my mother. And so this was the first time that I was really able to connect and understand each altar. And slick dude was really open. He was really fun. Um, And then there was a, the therapist who was definitely kind of the hierarchy. He was kind of the top notch guy. He knew all the other alters. He knew what their, their purpose was. He knew, um, I remember him telling me one time, he goes, if, if we, cause there's two different types of like DID therapy, you can do like the melding where they all kind of like face together. And we talked about it and he said, I'm just afraid that if that happens, she'll die. Like we will all just die, you know? Um, But he also informed me that other alters had actually died, that he killed them off because they weren't helping her anymore. He informed me of why Slick Dude was there. He informed me why other alters were there. Um, He informed me how they kind of view themselves as a pyramid and the pyramid can rotate. And so he would be up top and depending on what life was happening during that time, they could all kind of rotate in a triangle based off of their importance. So there would be down, there'd be some down here, there would be some up here, some up here, but they could kind of go around 
based off of what was going on in my mother's life. Um, but he was definitely in charge. He was very, he sat up very straight. He was very matter of fact with his words. You could tell he was very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was able to fill me in on a lot of things that I just had no idea about. Um, and then there was another altar um, named Warrior Princess that my sister also named. And she was for all like not to curse, but she was a bitch. She was, <laughs> she was just terrible. She was mean. She was um, judgmental. She was rude. She just didn't care how she made you feel. Um, and she also, I learned this, had no concept of time. Hmm. And I found this out during the interview process because I walked in one day And my mother just started screaming at me. You abandoned me. You left me for three days. I can't believe you would do that. And I'm like, I had to very much dissociate during that time and not think of it as my mom and just think of it as some person I didn't know when I was just trying to get to know, Um, which helped me be a lot stronger during that time and be able to stick up for myself because I'm sure as you know, when you have such a manipulative and mentally and emotionally kind of abusive mother, you you don't have any power. You don't feel like you can stand up to them or you can really do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was able to basically dissociate myself enough as her daughter that nothing really scared me. I was just like, bitch, please. I was like, sit down. And (laughs) the, my mother just kind of looked at me and I was like, it's been three hours. I have been gone for three hours. I did not abandon you for three days. Sit up and let's do the interview. And she just looked at me and she just kind of looked at her watch and looked at the clock or whatever. And she was like, wait, it's only been three hours. And I said, yes. So you, before you continue to yell at me, get your facts straight. And she was just like, oh, I didn't know. I thought it had been three days, which was just a kind of a interesting fact about that altar that they just, she had no sense of time. Um, So she sat up and we continued talking and I kind of got to know this bitchy altar that I had kind of seen my whole life on the times when my mother would be really mean to me or call me names or do drastic things where you're like, holy crap, like what set you off to be able to do that when you were fine Mm -hmm. five minutes ago? And basically from my understanding and what she told me was that she was the altar that protects her from any type of basically like emotional breakage. So like, instead of being vulnerable, she switches and she just becomes mean because if she's the mean one, she's not the one getting hurt. Right. Right. So it made more sense as I kind of got to know that altar, um, doesn't make it right but it made more sense right like I kind of was like okay I can kind of do a timeline now and figure out why she would act like that um I also experienced how altars have basically different DNA it's the craziest thing but one altar had terrible eyesight and the other altar other altars had 20-20 so she even has isn't it? She even had an eye doctor that was like, you need glasses. And she was like, no, I don't. I've had 2020 my whole life. He's like, we just did an eye test. You need glasses. Went back the next week, 2020. Wow. Like, and I'm sure the doctor was like, right. And I'm sure the eye doctor was like, oh, there just must've been something off with my machine, some sort of human error. But yeah. So one altar had terrible eyesight. Um, another altar could smoke weed like it was water. I watched literally one altar because she's definitely a weed smoker. I watched her smoke one like puff of a joint high as a pipe, high as a freaking kite, laughing, hysterical, just like the typical, like loopy, funny, giggly, mm-hmm. high person, right? To then the next morning, her literally 
puffing so hard onto a joint to where she literally smoked the whole joint in no like less than five minutes stood up and started doing these like crazy intense yoga positions where I'm like if you had done that yesterday you would have fallen flat on your face like you would have lost it and this altar the weed basically made them focus made them way more like attentive way more of like the ability to do things Mm. so strange so I watched the swap of that um And then she also had a child altar that I spoke to that was probably the saddest in Mm. my mind when I interviewed them. I think after that one, it's kind of all, not a blur, but the timeline kind of all melts together during that week. But I remember crying a lot after the interviews and just almost kind of like I needed to just like breathe and let it all go. And I would, I would just go upstairs and I would just cry because I heard a lot about the abuse that she went through. Um, and I heard this like little child just saying how scared they are and how they don't know what to do. They don't know how to move forward. They just feel stuck. Like all of these just crazy emotions that if you were to hear a child say that you would be alarmed. Right, But you're hearing it in a 50 plus year old woman and you can just tell the vocabulary wasn't there. The way that they, the way that she put her words together sounded very much like a child. Um, The way that she cried was very much like a child. The way that she laid in her bed was very much like a child. Um, And it was, it was really hard to watch that one. I feel like the most, um, And it took a lot of processing. And after about a week of doing this, we finally got the interventionist to come and basically take her in the middle of the night. Um, We all knew that he was coming. So I walked in and I woke her up at midnight and I just said, mom, I don't know who you are right now, but we have someone here to take you to a psychiatric hospital in California. And initially she was very happy. She was excited. She was very willing to go, but I'll never forget the conversation that the interventionist had with all of us um, before we woke her up. We all stood in a closet because we didn't want her to hear or wake up. We were all in the big pantry closet. It was me, my dad, my ex-husband, my aunt, and this interventionist. And he said, this disorder is rare, right? It's why it's so hard to get it diagnosed and get into a psychiatric facility. And he goes, and I know a lot of people think she's probably faking, but the, the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't matter if she's faking it. She has a problem. And if she's not faking it, she has a problem. Right. And I think that's the first time that we had ever had anybody really validate that no matter what, there was a problem there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like he was just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, if she's been faking this for her whole life, it, that's a problem. (laughs) There's a reason. Yeah. There's a reason she's doing it. Normal people don't just do that. Exactly. So he kind of validate, cause I think our biggest fear was that she was going to go to this psych ward and they were going to laugh at us and they were going to say, well, this isn't real or, you know, whatever. And I think that was his way of kind of, no, it, no matter what, there is a problem and it's a big one because anybody who can fake this for 30 plus years, that's a problem. And he was like, and if it's true and it's real and she gets diagnosed, then we can start moving towards helping that problem. And so we kind of felt we had a little bit of a sigh of relief of like, okay, yeah. we're not, she's not going to go and we're not going to get this call of like, why the hell is she here? This is stupid because right. she's so good at faking it or manipulating the situation when she wants to. And so sure enough, she packed, I already had all of her bags packed. He grabbed her, they got in the car and they left When he took her to the airport he went with her. He dropped her off at this facility. I handed him the notebook that I had written all of these interviews and conversations with as proof. 
And she had even written in a journal. I even told her, I was like, you need to write in a journal this week. And so she did. And that was another journal of all these different handwritings and everything, because she was just cycling through these altars so many times throughout the day. Cause my mom, Kim was gone. She was not there that whole week. It was, she was out. Um, so she gets to the facility and things kind of calmed down at the house. It wasn't as chaotic. Um, but we would get calls from the interventionist and the doctor and all of these things. And because I was her daughter and not her spouse, I wasn't really the form of contact or the point of contact for them, which in reality, I should have been because no one else did the interviews. My dad was in the clouds and my aunt could only tell them what she knew, but she hasn't lived with my mother for, you know, years upon years recently. So me, I should have been the point of contact, right? but I wasn't. And so a lot of these things were like through the grapevine and the doctor and the interventionist called us up and said, okay, this is what you need to expect. Your mother is allowed to use the the phone. Do not answer it. They basically were like, you cannot answer her phone calls right now. Um, we have officially diagnosed her. She has 14 alters. I think it literally took them 25 minutes to diagnose her once she saw like an actual specialist. Like we got the phone call literally within 24 hours of her being there. So she had already had her first meeting and it only took one meeting for them to be like, oh yeah, she's got DID. They diagnosed her with 14 alters and then other things like anxiety, depression, you know, right. all, all kinds of things. I actually have the paperwork still from the doctor. Um, and so then they kind of warned us. They said, she'll be here for about 10 days, but this is going to be hard. And they said, because of her condition, we obviously allow, we allow all of our clients to, to be able to reach out to family members, but we are specifically telling you that you cannot answer your phone. You cannot talk to her. You cannot do anything. So I said, done, sweet. That, that's easy. easy enough, right? Was not easy for my dad. And she even got into, she even got to my aunt. So she called my dad. He answers. She calls my aunt. She answers. She calls me. F that. I did so much work mm-hmm. to get you here. I am not answering that cell phone or mm-hmm. that phone call. Um, and sure enough, drama started to ensue because she was able to talk to them and they were actually conversing. And she was telling them how horribly she was treated there and how difficult it was and how she just wants to come home. And this wasn't the best idea and all of these things. And we start getting phone calls from the doctor and the interventionist separately with different stories, different information. She was so good that she literally manipulated the interventionist and the doctor and pitted them against each other. And I finally had to get on the phone with the interventionist and be like, would you please now just speak to me? Like, use me as your point of contact. I could have told you this from the beginning. I could have told you that she has a very low sense of time. She has no concept of time. If she's a certain altar, I can tell you this about another altar. I can like, you have got to talk to me because you don't know what you're dealing with. I do, but you don't know my aunt. She has an idea, but she doesn't know personally. Like I do my dad, he knows, but he's kept his head in the clouds for the last 25 years. I was like, no one knows it like I do. And so I had to kind of finally be like, okay, you need to call me if anything goes wrong and I'll be able to kind of talk you through it. But it got to a point where the doctor and the interventionist who had worked together for decades almost had to like completely fire each other because they couldn't work together because she had done such a good job of manipulating the situation just in a week that she was there. Um, They finally did their therapy. They were doing all of this while she was there. I then called every specialist in Oregon for a DID therapist, someone who specialized specifically in this disorder, which is really hard to find really hard. to find. I spent hours and hours on the phone calling these doctors, telling them the story, the history, and basically all of them were like, we can't handle that. We don't know. We don't know enough until I called the last one 
And he said, I'll take her. He was four hours away from their house. But I said, it doesn't matter. They're going to have to figure it out. Like we need to, we need to do this. So I was able to get him on board. Um, and the end of her 10 days was coming to an end. And I had to have a really difficult conversation with my dad and say, you cannot bring her back here right now. You cannot bring her back here with an 11 year old little girl in this house. And he just didn't know why. He was like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm sorry. Did I just not explain this? Like, you cannot bring this woman who has threatened to commit suicide. You're at work all day. And you're going to leave her alone with an 11-year-old little girl, your daughter. And we don't know what she's going to do. We don't know where she's at mentally. I had to threaten CPS for him to agree to not allow her there. Because she had manipulated my dad so much to say, you have to come pick me up and take me home. I just want to be in my bed. I want to be in my house. I want to be in my home. No, no, (laughs) you can say no. So they, uh, because she was in California, my other aunt, her old, her sister picked her up from the airport and took her back to her house for a little bit, just a little grace period. Um, And we packed up all of our stuff. And I took my sister and we left. And it was a really big move on my part because I could see the big picture when no one else could. So they all were like, you can't take your sister away from your mom and not let her say goodbye. I was like, yes, I can. Because Mm -hmm. I know exactly what's going to happen. If we allow her to say goodbye to my mom, my mom is then going to manipulate her and shame her and guilt her for leaving. And no 11 year old needs to feel that in this situation right now. I don't care what my mom feels. I don't care about her right now. I care about my sister. Right. And so that's what I had to do. Um, And we did, we finally left, but we did, we left after I did get one phone call from my mother. And because it was the very end, I did decide to answer it. She was literally, it was like the day before she was leaving. And sure enough, the entire phone call was guilting me into such a traumatic experience that I put her in and that she could never forgive me for sending her to this hospital and for, you know, she didn't get any help and they don't know what they're doing and all of these things and how much I hurt her by doing this. And I just had to say, I remember her saying, I remember this so vividly. She goes, just tell me you love me. And I said, no, she goes, all I need you to all I need to hear is you tell me that you love me. And I said, no, I'm not doing that right now. I go, I have other things I have to focus on and me telling you that I love you is not one of them. I go, I'm not doing it. And she started screaming and crying on the phone because I wouldn't give her what she wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really the first time that I saw her completely unravel because I wouldn't give in. Right. And I think a lot of it is because I was so dissociated and I don't think I've ever looked at myself as her daughter ever again. And it's been over seven years. I don't think I've ever truly been like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm her daughter. It's like completely gone. There's like a block there for me to be able to do what I did and do it well. I had to completely just not be her daughter that week. And I just don't think I ever got back to it. Yeah. And we traveled back to Utah with my sister. And within about three days, she just created more and more drama. She created lies, spreading lies. Um, She tried to turn me and my sister against each other. Um, And I finally just had to put my foot down. And she just, we were on a FaceTime. And I remember this too. It's like a little movie in my head. I had the phone sitting on a dresser at my aunt's house and she gets on for FaceTime and I'm standing there talking to her. And she basically tells me that I basically did the worst thing I could possibly ever do to her was to take her daughter away from her without saying goodbye and to put her in that facility. And she basically said, I need you to say sorry. And I said, no. And she stood up. I thought she was going to explode. I literally, like, if, if you could have a cartoon that explodes, that would have been her. (laughs) 
and she turns bright red and she stands up and she starts like, you know, pacing and she's freaking out. And I just said, bye. And I turned around and I walked out of the room and I've never spoken to her again. Um, and it was like this switch in my head that was like, I've done what I needed to do and I can't do it anymore. I've given you your therapist. I've put you in a facility to get, you know, to get diagnosed. My aunt, I don't want to ever make it to her. I don't, doesn't sound like my aunt helped. She helped so tremendously. Oh my God. She's like the real MVP, but I did everything that I could possibly do to help her. And yeah, I basically just walked away from it and I tried to forget it. And it was about the hardest 18 months because during that time, I also found out I was pregnant and I had like nine cents to my name and I was living on an air mattress in my aunt's basement. Like it was just the worst timing ever. But over the le- the the next seven years, I would say the first 18 months was the hardest for sure. I was very depressed. I went from talking to my mother three hours a day, not healthy, not healthy at all. No. <laughs> but I thought it was great not speaking to her at all. And I almost felt like I'd lost my identity of like, mm-hmm. who am I without my mother, you know? Mm-hmm. So then moving into a really big anger stage, you know, um, lots of anxiety, lots of anger. And then I got a letter from her in the mail and it solidified why I cut things off. And I don't think she realizes that that's what that letter did because I think in her mind, the letter was trying to apologize and mm-hmm. kind of reconcile things. But one, during that time frame in Oregon, my son almost got killed three times by her. One, driving the opposite way on a street and laughing about it with my son in the car. Two, leaving her pills out to where he could get them, and he did. I had to fish them out of his mouth. And three, she was babysitting him while we went to the store and decided to smoke three different types of weed at once, and that was when she turned into her mental breakdown. He was two. And she was screaming and freaking out. And luckily my sister was home at the time so she could take him upstairs. But there were three instances where it could have been very, very bad. It could have right? been violently different. Yes. Violently different. We got mm-hmm. lucky. Um, and so that was one of the main reasons. I also had to say goodbye to all 15 of my animals because of her lies, which even if you just have to say goodbye to one of your animals, it's like heartbreaking, right? right? I just say goodbye to 15 of my animals all within like a week period. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote this letter and one sentence in it said, um, basically, I would have done anything to just get your help. It didn't matter the cost. And it was like a solidified thing of like, that's that honestly was closure enough for me to realize you just admitted it in your letter that I don't matter. It's only you. It only is you. You used my life just freely to get the help that you needed. You used my son's life. You used everyone's life to just kind of get the help you needed. Now, am I glad she got the help she needed? Absolutely. But it definitely was a stopping point for me and her relationship. And I eventually got to a point where I never questioned reaching out to her again, because I then switched from having just normal anxiety, not speaking to her to then jumping over the hump of talking to her gives me anxiety. Right. No, absolutely. Where now I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I, nope. I don't need to do that. I wish her the best. I hope that, you know, her therapy helped. I hope that she's healing. I hope that she can be a better mother to my sister. I hope she can be a better wife to my dad. Like all of these things. I hope that everything is better, but it now is to the point for me where the thought of speaking to her in person or over the phone where I can hear her voice gives me more anxiety than not. Right. And, um, it's, I don't think anybody ever really talks about that with cutting contact with a family member is that it's hard. Mm-hmm. No one does it because they want to, mm. <laughs> no one's like, you're bugging me today. We're just going to not speak. No. <laughs> like no. cutting contact is one like life changing decision. 
And it's because you've tried every single other option and nothing has worked. And how many times did you have to hear, but she's your mother? Oh, and, and it's like, so oh, many times, you know, but so it's your many mother, times. you know, and it's like, oh, it does, you know, I mean, and that's why I always try to tell people like, you're number one, you got to take care of you. You yeah. did everything. I mean, you're down for sainthood in my book because <laughs> you did everything. I mean, you can, you can only do so much to someone that doesn't want the help. And I can't even imagine dealing with 14 different personalities because I mean, we talked about it earlier. Like I, I don't know what happened to my mother, but I do know that the manipulation was at a level that it was off the charts. So I can't even imagine that kind of manipulation. You right. know, I mean, here I am a per- innocent little kid. And the next thing I know I'm in court having to say, no, I didn't sleep with my father. Like what, what is going oh on? Oh my God. And it's yeah. like, what is like, what goes through these people's head? But I can't even imagine 14 of them. And like you said, they're all trying to protect her. So it's manipulation at levels that are unfathomable. I mean, I can't even, I can't even it, imagine it. it. That disorder, it makes sense why people who do have it are so selfish. Mm-hmm. Because they literally have multiple personalities in their head, only focusing on their well-being. No one else's, right? So it took me a long time to realize that of like, oh, duh. Like, no wonder my mother is so selfish and it's all about her. There was a running joke in my family of my mom is always right. We were always wrong and she was always right. And it makes sense now because it's like, of course she was always right. She had all these 14 people trying to protect just her, not her husband, not her kids, not anybody, just her. So why wouldn't she just consider only thinking of herself? Like, it makes sense when you think of it like that. Like, you literally have a disorder that is only protecting you. And And it doesn't matter what happens. No, and it's, it's, I can't even imagine the trauma that she went through to develop that too. It's, I mean- absolutely terrible. I, I have what she's told me, but I also have my grandmother. Her mother is a big writer. She wrote, she's written autobiographies. I have them. And I actually sat down and was like, I don't, this is probably going to trigger the hell out of me, but I'm going to read them all. And I did. And I will eventually probably throw them in a dumpster and burn them because I don't want my children to ever read them. Cause that's how bad it is. But it also made sense of why I always was confused by my mother and my grandmother's relationship because my grandmother was also abused. And it's just this like cycle of manipulation versus selfishness versus just mental and emotional trauma. And it just goes in this big circle of we can say terrible things and it doesn't matter what we say we're, we're blood and that's all that matters. Right. No, that's not how it works. And it definitely helped me kind of like go first full circle and realize that me cutting off my mother was also a really good thing for my own kids. I was going to say, yes, I just watched how the toxicity just traveled down just in different ways And nothing that they ever did was ever just remove it. They still had open communication. They still had all this connection. And I was like, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to keep traveling. I just have to literally cut it off. That's the only way my, my kids will ever look at me and be like, oh yeah, they're not going to see, you know, their grandmother manipulating and causing me pain or vice versa, or, you know, my grandmother, their great grandmother weaseling her way in and metal, like all of these like toxic traits that they, I grew up with, I didn't want for them. Amen. And so it kind of solidified reading her autobiography of like, Oh my God, it was never going to change. It just was never going to change. It just cycles through and it just looks a little bit different each generation. And Mm -hmm. I was not about to have that. I was about to just be like, Nope, you want to know about your family? I will tell you when you're older, but you don't need any like contact with them as a child. No, absolutely not. I mean, you did the, 
only right thing. And like you said, it didn't come about lightly. You didn't just go like, oh, I'm having a bad day with my mom. So let me cut her out of my life. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's not ever a decision you make lightly ever. No. And then you had your own healing to do because in all of that, you went through your own trauma. So yeah. And you could never do that with her in the picture. You could never no. do that with her. A- absolutely. No. And I, and I knew that very early on right after I did the interview process with how she acted, I already knew I could already, I was like, Oh, it doesn't matter that I spent 25 hours this week interviewing your alters and dissociated and would cry myself to sleep to get you help. That didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was that I lied to you a little bit to protect my sister and you had to go to a facility to get help. That was all that mattered. Right. Right. So, and you only wanted to hear that. I loved you. And yeah, like all of these things (laughs) of like, why don't you just tell me that you love me for at least what I mean? Like she did that my whole growing up, but I just found it so ironic that in that phone call, she was just like, just tell me you love me. No, I'm not. And yeah, she just lost her ever loving mind. And that's my first memory of really like, no, no, no. Yeah, it's, it's something in you just snaps and you're just, it, it's a bam. It's, it's no longer it an does. emotional decision. It's now just, it's just what has to nope. do. It's just what has to be. I, I never once questioned it. I feel like if you're questioning cutting contact, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. You're going to go back and forth. And I tried multiple times and I did. I kind of swayed back and forth. And it's true. It is a full on just like switch and you're just, you snap and you're done. And I never questioned it. I didn't feel bad about it. I just was like, oh yeah, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, right. That's my decision. That's the only option. And, and for the people listening, I think it's helpful too, because you did say that it all of a sudden you just realized that the anxiety that talking to her would create is worse than the anxiety of not talking to her. And that yep. should in itself, that speaks volumes. I mean, why do that to yourself? You've right. made the decision. You've gotten this far, let it go. Like not let mm-hmm. it go, but you know what I'm saying? Like it is a decision that's made. And there's, there's really, there's no going back. Why do it to yourself? You've healed, yeah. like you're healing, you're, you're better, you're good. Yeah. You know? I went through hours and hours of therapy to try and get over that. And like almost kind of helped me understand why I snapped because sometimes you don't even know why you're just like, Oh, yep. That's my only option. But like, why? And so, yeah, it, it is anybody, anybody who's cut contact, I have a lot of empathy for them because it's because they put up with so much and it did, it pushed them over the edge. And then that was, it was either drown or cut contact. That's literally kind of how I describe it is like, you either give yourself up, you drown, you can't breathe, or you just move on and you just cut that whole part out. Well, the world is happy that you did that because, (laughs) thank you. you know, I think it's, you've got a great story of hope. And I, like I said, I can't even imagine being in that situation or watching it play itself out. I mean, I just, the manipulation is something that, I mean, I'm good at because I grew up with it. And I, if I want to, you know, I used to say I was taught by the best. I was manipulated by a child psychiatrist. I mean, you can imagine the skills I gained but it's, it's, it's evil. It's bad. It's not like, it's so toxic and you just can't, you can't live like that. You just, you can't. Yeah. I question myself all the time. My therapist made me, it's probably the best thing that she's ever told me because I went into therapy one day and I said, I don't want to be like her. I literally question what I do every day. And she goes, the fact that you're actually asking yourself means that you're not doing it. And I was like, oh, yeah, she was wow. like, seriously, good point. <laughs> she was like, the fact that you're even questioning it, if you are acting like her means that you are very aware and that you're probably not even acting like her. Like no. the fact that you're conscious about it means that you're not, it's like narcissism. If right. you question, if you're a narcissist, you're not a narcissist. <laughs> right. So she, she kind of helped me with that of like, if you're questioning, if you're being manipulative or if you're being shaming or guilt tripping, you're probably not. No, no. So. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. hundred percent. Yeah. That wow. was good. Yeah. 
Well, so I don't even know how to tell you because I always end my things and be like, thanks now, but give someone a word of wisdom. Like, I don't know what to even do with all that. Like, as far as, I mean, it was, I mean, people are out there that don't know their parents have this and, or don't know their siblings have this or whatever it is. It's almost always I brought on by trauma. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you have that horrific past or, you know, your parents did, or, you know, it's something that happens. Um, any words of maybe if you even question it, what you would do, or if you would just not. Yeah. Um, I think my biggest aha when it came to moving forward was if anybody is struggling with this type of scenario, whether it's, you know, DID or or just some severe mental illness that causes a lot of toxicity like this, um, behavior can explain why they do things, but it doesn't excuse it. And I think I have to live by that now where it's like all the time, well, your mom is sick or they need help. That's fine. It's a fact they do, but it doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat Mm -hmm. and, and get all of the, you know, the, the leftovers of what they have and then say, oh, well, she's sick. No, it explains why they do things, but it doesn't excuse it. And no one, whether it's your mom or your sister or your brother or your grandpa or whoever, no one deserves to be treated like that, no matter what their illness is. And you have to respect yourself enough and love yourself enough, which is not easy. That is the hard part. You have to get to a point where you can accept that and realize, yes, I have to tell myself, my mom is sick. She went through horrific things, but it doesn't mean that I have to allow horrific things coming from her. And um, yep. And that's just what I had to start living my life by. Of it doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't mean you can treat me like shit. Yeah, nobody deserves it. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> and I agree. That's really the most simple way to put it is it explains it. It doesn't excuse it. Exactly. That, that's there's no more better way of saying that, you know? Yeah. So. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed yeah. our conversation. I didn't talk much. I'm just sitting back here listening. I'm like, just go for it, man. <laughs> it's kind of hard. Like, you don't even really know what questions to ask. You're just like, tell the story. Like, tell the story. Like, I got you. To yeah, no, yeah. I totally, I totally agree. And it, it brings up questions and, and it's, you know, I was just on a podcast earlier today and we were talking about like your relationship with food. And I'm like, just listening. Cause I don't have a, I don't have a, theory on it. I don't know anything about it. And I'm like, but it did bring spark up some questions, you know? So, I mean, self-reflection is amazing thing and discovery is an amazing thing, but I just want to say thank you again for coming on and appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I know are heading off to Vegas. So have a wonderful trip in Vegas and have fun. Yeah. Good luck. Sounds great. And everybody out there listening, great, great girl. And look how far she's come. And it's super <laughs> exciting to see the progress and the hope in such a crazy situation. So have a blessed day.